Ah, the year that would not end has finally come to a close. New Year's Day felt like that scene from Lord of the Rings Return of the King where Sam and Frodo are sitting on the side of an exploding volcano. It's done. Yes, Mr. Frodo. It's over now. We may still be sitting on Mount Doom with lava flowing all around us, but at the very least, the ring has been destroyed. 2020 is over. And despite the problems that still exist, this new year asks each of us who we want to be and what we want to do with the 365 brand new days rolled out in front of us. But before you go off and start making resolutions of what you want to do, or who you want to be in the new year. You need to have a clear understanding of who you already are. Welcome to Christianese. What does it mean to be a child of God? New Year's resolutions aren't built to last. I know that sounds pessimistic, but New Year's resolutions have an expiration date. Seriously, like a specific date. In 2013, Gold's Gym did research and found out that the second Tuesday in February is the day that most resolutions die. It's the day when new members at their gym stopped showing up. Further research has shown that the second week in February is when most everybody gives up on their resolution. When we decide that our diet, the sugar, gluten, dairy-free vegan diet, is not as enjoyable as we thought it might be. And maybe... Pizza and Chick-fil-A in moderation ain't so bad. If you're the kind of person who makes resolutions, you're going to want to circle the second week in February because that's probably when you're going to want to give up. Yes, it does sound pessimistic, but both research and a lot of our own experience tells us that resolutions aren't built to last. That said, this episode really isn't about how to build strong habits. You can find 101 articles about that online. It seems to me that the problem with our resolutions is not the implementation of them, but with the resolutions themselves. Think about your last resolution. Odds are that your resolution defined what you want to do differently in a new year. You want to start doing something. You want to stop doing something. You want to do something a little bit more or something a little bit less. And more often than not, these resolutions are really good but even our best resolutions fail because they are far too shallow. We only try to answer the question, what do we want to do, but never ask the question, why? So let's illustrate this in a really practical way. Think about the resolution you made this year and put it through three levels of why. For example, let's say you want to work out more. Okay, why do you want to work out more? To get in shape. Great. Why do you want to get in shape? Now there's a thousand different answers to that question. To be more confident, to feel better about yourself, to feel more attractive. But once you've picked one of those thousand answers, ask the question why one more time. Why do you want to be more attractive? Why do you need to be more confident? Why do you want to feel better about yourself? These questions aren't meant for you to be negative about yourself, but to understand the deeper reasons behind the thing you want to do. 
and there's a really good chance that you'll find your resolution is a means to change or adapt your identity. We're hoping that if we change what we do, we will change who we are. The question then is not what do you want to do in 2021 or even who do you want to be? The most important question we can answer is who am I? So, who are you? That's kind of the billion dollar question these days, isn't it? We're all trying to figure out and express who we are. I mean, truly, who we are. Our social media pages are carefully curated to express who we are and what we care about. We carefully choose everything from the style of our socks to the style of our couches to express something about who we are. We're fun. We're sophisticated, we're welcoming, we're austere, whatever that might be. And for some of us, maybe even many of us, we're not exactly sure who we are. You may even feel like you're on a journey trying to learn who you are. Here, Mr. Bilbo, where are you off to? I'm going on an adventure. It's our very own hero's journey, where we start out not exactly knowing where we're going to end up, but at the end hoping that we're kind of like Luke Skywalker, the farm boy who in the end saves the galaxy. You failed, your highness. I am a Jedi, like my father before me. Or to go with the trend already, Aragorn from Lord of the Rings, the nomadic ranger who was secretly a king, who humbly walked through the woods and fought noble battles until he, spoiler alert, but it's also the title of the movie, returned. Look, I'm a bit of a nerd, so those are the first two that popped into my head. But you could add just about any one of your favorite heroes to that list. Most characters from our favorite stories are on a journey to find out who they are. You're a wizard, Harry. And we feel like we're often doing the same thing. But with us, it usually doesn't feel as epic as it does in the movies. There's a little bit more reality. And a lot of times when we're trying to figure out who we are, we just feel lost. We don't have an end goal like defeat the empire or regain our throne. We just have to say, I don't really know who I am, but I'm hoping I figure that out. At least, that's how you probably live if you're an expressive individualist. The philosophy of self most of us accept is true. You may not have even thought of yourself as a philosopher, but you are. And odds are, if you're in the United States in 2021, you're an expressive individualist. If your favorite quote is to thine own self be true, you might be an expressive individualist. If you believe that everyone has their own individual truth, you might be an expressive individualist. If any outside standard or someone telling you what to do feels oppressive and unnatural, well, you might be an expressive individualist. You might be an expressive individualist if you feel your greatest joy comes from unapologetically living your truth. Well, I guess there's a little bit of expressive individualism in all of us. Jeff Foxworthy aside, many of us do ascribe to expressive individualism, which from now on I'll call EI because it's a bit of a mouthful. 
It is a philosophy most clearly defined by Charles Taylor in his book A Secular Age, published in 2007. Taylor defines EI as, quote, an understanding of life which emerges with the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century, that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity, and that it is important to find and live out one's own, as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside, by society, or the previous generation, or religious or political authority. That's the philosophic definition. You might recognize it more clearly, though, by its mottos, you be you, be true to yourself, follow your heart, or find yourself. In layman's terms, your mission or purpose in life is to discover who you really are, on your own, apart from anyone else, particularly any sort of organization or institution, or anything that came before you. On the surface, this philosophy can seem very freeing and empowering, that you can define who you are on your own terms. But if you even scratch expressive individualism, it starts to crumble and fall apart. First of all, it's impossible to see yourself as timeless or placeless. Culture is defined by things that have come before us, particularly institutions. And when you grow up in a culture, you simply can't divorce yourself from it and start over. And let's not pretend that people in the society that define themselves by the brands they wear and buy are able to define themselves apart from institutions. EI on the surface doesn't work. But even as far back as 50 years ago, philosophers have pointed out the self-defeating nature of radical individualism. Ernest Becker, in his 1973 Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Denial of Death, outlines how our culture, which both seeks to elevate the individual and to live without God, cannot help but fail. He writes that when our culture abandoned God, we looked elsewhere for transcendence. One of his primary examples is what he calls the romantic solution, that instead of looking to God for transcendence and purpose, we look towards a romantic partner to give us that wholeness. He writes, quote, But now the rub for man. If sex is a fulfillment of his role as an animal in the species, it reminds him that he's nothing himself but a link in the chain of being, exchangeable with any other and completely expendable in himself. Sex, then, represents the defeat of individuality, of personality. But it is just this personality that a man wants to develop. How can a human being be a godlike everything to another? No human relationship can bear the burden of godhood, and the attempt has to take its toll in some way on both parties. It is impossible to get blood from a stone, to get spirituality from a physical being, and so one feels inferior, that his life has somehow not succeeded, that he has not realized his true gifts, and so on. If your partner is your all, then any shortcoming in him becomes a major threat to you." End quote. In EI, you are asking either inanimate objects or other beings to be your everything. And even something as individual as romance fundamentally cannot give that to you. The attempt to do so will take its toll on both parties. 
The person that you ask to give you wholeness will let you down, and you will let them down, because you're not seeking to love them. You're seeking to be fulfilled by them. In short, there's nothing in this world that can carry the burden of your identity. Some people find this out, and instead of looking for something else to define them, they turn to themselves and see their feeling and their expression as preeminent. But this, instead of being an idolatry of something else, becomes an idolatry of self. But how can we, who know we are broken, lost searching for our identities, fulfill ourselves? EI is not empowering and freeing. It's unmooring and isolating. And it's no wonder that tools of individual expression like social media cause us more despair than fulfillment. Now, you might be thinking this is just a problem in the non-Christian world, but the truth is expressive individualism has made major inroads into the church. According to a 2015 Barna Omnipole, 76% of Christians believe the best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. 66% of Christians believe the highest goal of life is to enjoy it as much as possible. And 72% believe to be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire most. The first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is what is man's chief end? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But as of 2015, the majority of the American church believed that man's chief end is to do whatever he feels like, to do that which gives you the most fulfillment. And you can really see it on Sunday morning. Many popular and growing churches build themselves as inspirational, encouraging you to live your purpose. For young singles, we're still looking for soulmates, someone who can fulfill us and make us happy. Unlike non-Christians, we're not necessarily looking for sex to do that, but we're definitely looking for marriage to do that. And church, instead of being a place to invest, is increasingly becoming a place to consume. We want the right music to inspire us, the right preaching, the right style, the right people in the pews around us. If a church isn't fulfilling our unspoken needs, well, there's another one around the block that we can go to. Our local congregations have become a means to communicate our personal identity. Here's a more anecdotal question. When someone tells you where they go to church, do you form ideas about who they are as a person? I never noticed expressive individualism in the church because I didn't know the name. But now that I've learned about it, I can't help but see it all over evangelical Christianity. We're going to have to be diligent to tear it out by the roots, because a philosophy of idolatry is absolutely antithetical to the gospel. I know all that's kind of rough, but are you ready for the good news? What if a given identity were stronger than any created identity ever could be? What if you didn't have to rely on fleeting feelings but could rely on an eternal perspective? What if you could have a secure identity that allowed you to flourish in your gifts and find grace in your failings? What if there was someone that you could lean on for transcendence and wholeness that would not let you down? What if there was something better than mere inspiration, 
What if you could be redeemed? What if you could be made whole, sanctified? Psalm 139 says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that God knit us together in our mother's womb. And Matthew 10 says, even the hairs on our head are numbered by God. God knows you. He made you. He has seen you at your absolute worst, even those moments that you want no one to know about. And despite that, he looks at you and says, I want you to be my child. It's not something that you have to be good enough for or earn. It's not something you just become by sitting in a church pew or being a quote-unquote good person. It's something that's given to you. Ephesians 1 says, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. In Him we have redemption, forgiveness. Ephesians 2 says, We are saved by grace through faith, and this not of our own works, but the gift of God, so that no one can boast. And if you trust Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, You are a new creation. What's old has passed away, and what's new has come. Colossians 3.3 says that if you're a Christian, your life is hidden in Christ, that he is your identity. And Galatians 2.20 goes as far as to say, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live is because of the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 2.19, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. And Galatians 4.5, that we are adopted as sons with full rights. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, who calls Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are also an heir through God. So Christian, who are you? You were a slave to sin, but God came to know you, called you, adopted you as his child, has made you a saint, has forgiven you, redeemed you. And as Philippians 1.6 says, he will complete the good work he began in you. He's going to make you holy. And just like you didn't earn that standing, you can't unearn it either. 2 Timothy 2.13 says that when we are faithless, God remains faithful. So this year, when you're making your resolutions, don't ask yourself who you want to be. Don't think about what you want to do and how you want that thing to define you. Root yourself in who God says you are and what He's doing in your life. If you do that, every resolution will be an overflow of what God says about you. That's something that doesn't expire on the second Tuesday in February. God has told you who you are so that you can rest in that identity. You can live as a child of God. What does that look like in 2021? 2 Peter 1, 5 through 10. Make every effort to add to your faith excellence, to excellence knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly affection, to brotherly affection unselfish love. For if these things are really yours and are continually increasing, they will keep you from becoming ineffective and unproductive 
in your pursuit of knowing our Lord Jesus Christ more intimately.